America is struggling with a post-pandemic labor shortage, but the pandemic is not the only cause of the shortage. The economy today is facing a demographic squeeze, a persistent skills gap, and a mass reconsideration of work and jobs, known colloquially as the Great Resignation, in which workers are quitting in record numbers in the hope of finding better opportunities. These issues are aggravated by continued declines in workforce participation, the rate at which working age individuals actively seek employment, and those working part-time who want full-time jobs. These are just two of the groups that are called hidden workers, the more than 27 million Americans that include caregivers, individuals with criminal records, neurodivergent individuals, the physically disabled, veterans, and other populations that have difficulty accessing employment. When these people go into the labor market to find a job, they encounter many barriers, including how they are viewed by potential employers, online application challenges, search algorithms, or because their skills aren't easily recognized or don't translate well to the current market demand. For this episode of Hardly Working, I'm joined by AEI's own Joseph Fuller to discuss hidden workers. Joe is a non-resident fellow at AEI and a co-director of the Managing the Future of Work project at Harvard Business School. We discuss his new report, Hidden Workers, Untapped Talent, and how reforming employer practices can expand access to the pool of potential employees and help workers bring their best to the labor market. Joe Fuller, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Brad, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Joe, and longtime admirer of your work, and particularly your affiliation with AEI makes it easy for us to kind of stay in touch with each other's research. So it's great having you on. And I want to start out with if uh, just getting you to talk. Nobody likes to do this, right? Everybody's so humble. <laughs> uh, but talk about yourself, you know, where, where Joe Fuller comes from and how he wound up as a professor at the Harvard Business School. Well, uh, Brent, some of my friends would be um, quickly object to the notion that I don't like talking about myself. But <laughs> in any case, actually, it's a bit of a, a short story, at least short in terms of miles traveled. I'm actually the son of two Harvard professors. When I grew up, I grew up around Harvard and specifically Harvard Business School, where my father was tenured and then an associate dean. And uh, I went here to school. I was and was born about two miles from here, and our family cemetery plots about two and a quarter miles from here. So it's not going to be very much of a long round trip for me. After uh, business school, um, I started a management consulting firm with several friends of mine here, uh, including Professor Mike Porter, who uh, I'd worked for as a research assistant for many years, and that was the beginning of the the real era of business strategy as a topic. And I was uh, I ran that firm for about 25 years, and then came to HBS about 10 years ago. When I first got here, we had a project underway at our school about the U.S. economy post the Great Recession, and a number of issues have been identified by that project that were seemingly at the root of issues and challenges the U.S. was facing, and one of them uh, was skills workforce and the skills development system. And no one was covering that. And I didn't really fully apprehend the the complexity of the topic, but I knew from my client work that it was was very important to them and was of had been growing concern over my years in industry. So uh, I raised my hand to study that. And here we are 10 years later talking about some of our new research. Terrific. Uh, I'm I'm really intrigued. Uh, you know, we we talk about people from sort of outside the metropolitan areas of you know they sort of are born, grow up, live, work, die in the same communities. Uh, and this is an unusual story of somebody who counts Cambridge as the the place where all of that is uh, is happening. <laughs> tell, tell me what that was like. Well, first, your dad was at. Uh, Harvard Business School. What was your mom doing? She was actually the first woman who was a paid faculty member of the Harvard Business School. She was on the research faculty. And then she ran and and taught in a number of the programs that were run for women managers and executives that 
because women were not admitted to our program until the 1960s. She also uh, did uh, quite a lot of executive education. I can remember uh, probably as, uh, oh, I don't know, an eight or nine-year-old, she was running a program here at HBS for women owner-operators from Vietnam. The U.S. government had brought these women to Harvard to help hone their managerial skills. Many of them were the widows of business people who had been assassinated during the Vietnam War. And uh, I must say, as as a, a eight year old or nine year old, that's one of my favorite memories because every single woman in that class uh, was doting on me the whole time. Uh, as uh, and I would often go to class and do my homework in the top row of class while my my mother was teaching. So uh, I have a I have a lot of of memories of of HBS during its various incarnations. And very strangely, my friend, Mike Porter, who's a university professor and runs an institute on competitiveness here at HBS, he sits in the my father's old office when he was the associate dean of the school. So the wow. ghosts are around. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're friendly ones, but yeah. uh, it is so, a little eerie sometimes. So did you ever have any thought in your head of doing anything other than becoming a research professor? Well, the after I left my company, I, I very closely, uh, very close thing. I, I nearly went to become a um, a senior executive at a very large global company, and mm-hmm. um, through very happy set of circumstances, uh, I was able to spend some time with the then dean of our school, Dean Nathan Noria, and he got me to revisit whether that's really what I wanted mm-hmm. to do as a second act. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, did, uh, as did my wife, who um, was perfectly willing to pull up stakes and, and go live in a different city, giving up. At the time, she was a city councilor in our city. She's now actually the mayor of the city I live in. But she was once again willing to sacrifice uh, for my interests. But um, I really got excited about coming back mm-hmm. to HBS. I had been approached and had considered getting a PhD when I graduated from our MBA program. And, and the school has been terrifically accommodating and, and a great place for me to land and, and uh, both teach MBAs and executives, but also get a, a chance to do some uh, research on the whole area of, of skills and employability. Yeah. So a remarkable story. It makes me think about how often career choices are handed down sometimes, you know, from parents to children uh, and the sort of the inclinations that we develop as, when we're young um, sort of are there and and uh, and then they just sort of pop out. And sure enough, you, you like the same things, uh, well, it, enjoy the same it, things your parents did. It gets, it gets even worse. I mean, sometimes I tease I'm in the family business, but when my father left uh, Harvard Business School, Probably he was in his early 50s. He left to become the chief human resources officer at General Motors. So here I am writing about business considerations relative to workers and and skills development and how they source workers and things like that. And uh, uh, I'm just following in his uh, his footsteps in terms of both being a professor at HBS and then and then studying how companies think about human assets. Terrific. And a great segue to the the substance of our conversation today, which is around your new report, uh, Hidden Workers, Untapped Talent. In my career, especially in the last 20 years, have spent a lot of time on thinking about returning uh, ex-offenders as a talent pool that needs to be incorporated both for the, the benefit of business and commerce, but also for the benefit of society that we, and I think this is increasingly true as we look at the labor shortage, we, we really don't have anybody to waste and we never have, but it's now evident in a way that it hasn't been before. So why don't you talk a little bit about what is a hidden worker and wh- where, do we, where do we find them? Well, the, the phrase that, that we came up with, hidden workers, really describes a very large group and diverse group of workers that are effectively 
screened off or hidden from the consideration of employers when they hire. They're people of that share several attributes. And one is that they have backgrounds and experiences that don't always precisely match up to what employers are looking for. And sometimes they have attributes that are disqualifying in some way from consideration, at least for a lot of jobs like per your research, Brent, related to offenders. I got interested in this topic in part because of of being around AEI and, and reading your work and, of course, the great work of our colleague Nick Epperstadt about men of prime working age missing from work. And when you, we look at the government data, of course, it's, very, it's structured around very specific categories of people. So, you know, the U3 rate, which is the unemployment rate, as you know, that is commonly reported in the news, people who are actively looking for work, but not the people who have stopped looking for work. The U6 rate, of course, includes people working part-time and want to work full-time and people who would consider starting looking for a job if they could find one. But when you when you think about those very large populations, there are a couple of features. One is there are people that are available to work, at least demographically, but are not captured either number. But also, it, it's, it's a number that's very hard to get your head around because it's both big and it's just someone's working part-time and they like to work full-time, but we don't know anything else about them. We don't know why they're working in part-time. They are unemployed, not seeking work. Why? So I wanted to look into that. And in, in our project, Managing the Future of Work here at HBS, we almost always start from the employer side, from the demand side, which is significantly underweighted in the literature. And, and also by, by studying the demand side, we can often come up with ideas that maybe the demand side can consider. And so we, when we looked into this, we found there were on the order of 27 million hidden workers in the U.S. These people are essentially walled off in some meaningful way from considerations for work. And it's a variety of types of people. It's caregivers. So a lot of those part-time workers work part-time because they don't have sufficient backup for childcare or elder care or maybe a disabled or, or ill spouse. Veterans are hidden workers because the skills they have rely on a taxonomy and an experience base that doesn't map very comfortably into to work in the civilian life. People with criminal records, what are called NEETs in the literature, neither in education or employment. People with um, who are ill, maybe suffering from mental illness, physical, chronic conditions, uh, disabled. So there, there are about nine or 10 big categories, but they all share that one thing in common that when they go into the labor market to find a job, the deck is really stacked against them because of the way employers search for workers and for candidates. So uh, what is it about the way that employers are looking for people that is creating this invisibility screen for these workers, do you think? Well, there, there are a couple of things. Uh, the first is that when the job application process largely went online, which it's 90 plus percent for most employers, it had a, a desirable effect in the eyes of lots of employers, which is more people started applying. So some of my age, of course, when I was applying for jobs coming out of Harvard Business School, I got out my my Underwood typewriter and typed a letter and dropped it, you know, gave it to the tender mercies of the United States Postal Service and hope to get a response. Now that you, one can apply online, the application process is much easier for people, much more accessible. And so companies then found after unlocking this big pool of applicants, guess what? They're getting a lot of applications. A, a, a large company will get on average 250 applications for a middle-level position, and no one's going to hit print 250 times. So they started using the technology to try to narrow the number of applicants they would actively consider as candidates. And to do that, they started instructing the systems, this is what we're looking for. It could be as a condition like, this is some a job that we 
believe requires a college degree. So if someone doesn't have a college degree, one of these online applicants, you may exclude them from any further consideration, just drop them from the pool that goes forward. It could be looking for minimum years of experience. Increasingly, in in most recent years, it's looking for specific words. So it might be as simple as the name of a computer program. We were looking for someone who's expert in SQL. We're looking for someone with you know, a background in grow, the Grow with Google suite. But there are some other considerations as well. So it, it will look for candidates. About 50% of companies do this. Look for candidates and either have that filter, which says, drop this person altogether if they don't have what I'm looking for, or rank a candidate lower if they have a gap in their work history of more than six months. So a number of these measures are essentially inferences. I infer someone with a college degree has the self-efficacy and the capacity to learn and maybe more advanced what I call social skills than someone who doesn't because these are all relative ratings. I think that someone who's been unemployed for a long period may not have that self-efficacy or maybe doesn't have a great reputation with people they previously worked with. So I'm going to infer that someone that's been employed or still employed is going to be a better fit for me than someone who hasn't been. This is all applied in the service of dramatically shrinking the number of people who are actually actively considered through a kind of normal process that we all imagine when you apply for a job. I'm going to get an email. I'm going to call somebody up. I'm going to schedule an appointment. I'm going to get interviewed. For large companies, that very often only five, six, seven candidates out of that initial pool of 250 are actively considered by the person that's going to make the hiring decision. So you have to shrink that pool of 250 down a lot. And companies have designed a system, Brett, that really stresses efficiency. So what's happening is when someone has some gap in their resume or some omission in their resume or a factor that the the AI has been instructed to consider as a killing flaw or a very unattractive attribute rather than others, they drop out of sight, even if they are a near ideal candidate on multiple other criteria. So this front end of the AI ends up screening off, hiding a bunch of workers from consideration. A second thing is the companies don't regularly update their job descriptions that are used to make decisions about what they're looking for in a candidate. And that has a couple of impacts. It it means that they're not really in getting very specific about what are the affirmative attributes they're looking for for someone that are relevant today. But also, as the job descriptions get longer, there are that many more keywords in them, that many more attributes you're looking for. Pretty soon, the whole process is, is looking for someone on all sorts of different bases Frankly, as a one-time employer and, 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 and consultant advisor to big companies, most of which don't actually make a difference in doing the job. So the whole process is architected around efficiency with kind of a false precision and have the unfortunate consequence of walling people off. And we know that's the case because 90% of employers admit it when asked. They say, I accept, I know that I'm pruning qualified candidates as a function of this process. They don't say I'm proud of it. They don't say I'm I'm excited by that. They say, I, I know that's a byproduct the way we're doing this, but we're doing this in the service of being very efficient in our hiring process. And that's just collateral damage, as they'd say in the artillery. That's so interesting. I mean, how could you possibly just care? I don't see how you can characterize it as efficient if the end result is the exclusion of people that you would actually benefit from hiring. That seems to me to be the definition of inefficiency. Like, I'm curious, how do they, how do they square that circle in their own <laughs> minds? I mean, is it just, you know, we don't have any choice because uh, there's just so many people seeking these jobs and we have to have something to, we have to have some screening mechanism. So this is 
a technology based rather than human based. So yeah, well, no process is perfect, but this actually gets us this is an advance over what we would have to do otherwise. Is that kind of the way they look at it? Yeah, or? it's it's certainly it's definitely a false efficiency. And I think that there are a couple of ways uh, to understand how this has come about. But one is that in most companies, the person called a recruiter, we can all imagine what that is, the prime primary way they're evaluated is through minimizing any direct cost in hiring a new person and in minimizing the time it takes to get that person in the position. Please notice what I'm not mentioning. They don't get evaluated on the person that I hired proved to be highly effective in the job. The person that I hired stayed at the company. The person that I hired got promoted. None of that factors into the evaluation of recruiters. So I think one of the reasons this false efficiency flourishes is the incentives and metrics. And being from AI, we think about incentives all the time, whether they're in the public sector, or the private sector. Incentives motivate the recruiter to do exactly what they're doing. Get down to a very few, as we hope, overqualified candidates who the what's called the hiring manager in the literature, but the, the supervisor, the boss, the person who's going to actually make the decision on which of these candidates hired will accept quickly. All those measures of whether the person was productive, was retained, got promoted, that lives on the other side of the silo. That lives in the operating side of the business. It doesn't really inform the day-to-day decision-making of the recruiters. Now, if if we had a third guest, a second guest here, a third participant in our call who is who runs one of these things, well, that's not really true, Joe. You know, we get feedback and and you know, we understand they understand catastrophic failures. They understand, you know, if they they keep constantly having to rehire for a job that they may be a problem who they're picking. But for the vast majority of jobs for for large hires and small there really isn't a lot of clear, bright line from, from the recruiting decision all the way through to the operating consequences. And this is a consistent theme in our research, Brent, across multiple topics now, which is employers often do incomplete math. It's like the old performance anxiety dream that you know there's a question on the back of the page and you forgot to turn it over until there are three minutes left in the test. Very, very often employers, because of organizational structures or incentives and metrics, overfocus on two or three variables in making a decision and are oblivious to one or two others that might very frequently change the decision they make if they were taking those variables they're blinded to into account. So that, this reminds me of an article that ran in the New York Times almost three years ago about this challenge of sort of algorithm-driven screening and hiring and needing to find a way, particularly to be able to find those candidates who have the non-cognitive or soft skills that are required for the job, that it's just like, how do you measure that looking at a piece of paper? You know, it's very difficult. And I, I remember one particular example was one of these algorithms was looking at hobbies. You know, what do you do? Sort of asking the question, what do you do outside work? And uh, they were looking for somebody to lead a team. And this candidate popped up, made made it through the screen because he ran a uh, pickup basketball league, you know, and so they, that was the trigger for getting them through the screening process was that this is somebody who knew about teams overarching organization, how to align people to tasks, all that kinds of stuff that we need desperately in the workforce. And it's sort of hard to measure, but incredibly valuable skill base. I think one of the other issues that I've noticed over the years, and I'd be interested in getting your reflections on this, is the disconnect between leadership, corporate leadership and hiring managers, right? So you've got the, you've got the people men and women at the top in the C-suite, you know, making decisions about direction, 
And they seem to have a very different idea about what the ideal employee looks like than the mid-level managers and the hiring recruiters. Because there is, of course, a, a gap between strategy and execution. For instance, we frequently see employers saying, I just, I need, I need a really strong person who's going to come in, learn quickly, think critically. They need to be able to write. They need to be able to whole bunch of these pretty sophisticated high-level tasks in order to complete this project that involves a lot of technical expertise. The people who are actually managing the lines of businesses, a business and the people who go out and recruit for them are like, okay, what I see in all of this stuff is that I need somebody who knows how to do Python. <laughs> I, I, you know, <laughs> this is the thing I can look for, you know, that's specific. And it just seems like there's just an incredible disconnect between what, like I said, what business owners and operators at a strategic level are thinking about, and then what's going on down the implementation chain. What do you think about that? You you see that pattern again and again and again. And it's a pattern we see in all large organizations, whether it's a administration in Washington or a large company. And by a large company, I'm not talking about Goliaths like Amazon and Walmart, but any kind of big complex organization with hundreds of employees, the you from the top, it's lovely and you're not down in, in, in the weeds, but it's distorted. You're a long way away from the shop floor. And what we see again and again is that the high off levels of the company, the C-suite or officer level people, vice presidents above, they have a it's well-meaning, if not delusional, but they have a, a rather stylized impression of what's going on in the company. And that will be everything from, well, these are the type of, of workers we're looking for to these are the types of policies we implement. As you go down each level in the company, you'll often find that the confidence, for example, uh, in the the uniformity of the company's execution goes down. The level of compliance with policy goes down. The data that each group is drawing on is different. So let's take an example of morale in a company. Large companies regularly do attitude surveys, and they're not always uh, hugely confirming and encouraging. They're pretty abstract. You know, are you happy with your job? You know, are you well treated here? Do you feel you're fairly compensated? A manager, let's say a supervisor on in a high-tech manufacturing facility or department, someone who's running a category at a big retail store, not at corporate, but in the you know, main street store of a of a Walmart or Costco, they're on the firing line. They've got to get product moved. They've got to get orders shipped. Uh, they've got to make up for everything from absences to someone not being productive today. And so they're, they're not getting out the manual and say, how do I give negative feedback to someone who's 15 minutes late? They're saying, you know, Joe is 15 minutes late yet again. And I'm going to go up to him and say, this is your second warning. If you're 15 minutes or more in any given year, three times you're fired. And I turn on my heel, I go, because I've got stuff to do. And, and if I've got an open job and I'm about, particularly if I'm under some kind of operating pressure, and I know what I just need somebody is a, is a Python black belt. And I don't really care if they're going to be the most popular person in the work group. And I really don't care. If they are acting a little peculiarly, I just need them to show up and start writing code. I'm willing to set aside the kind of idealized version of what people we want to hire around here look like and act like. One of the reasons that happens a lot, Brent, is that companies historically try to hire just in time. They put off hiring until they absolutely positively know they need that talent and they absolutely positively know they have the budget headroom to afford that talent. And you can see this again and again, even in the kind of macro data, by how often companies act surprised that they suddenly need 
all sorts of cybersecurity people. Who knew? You know, or oh my gosh, we need truck truck drivers. Are there and there aren't any because we didn't. They didn't do sophisticated workforce planning a year ago to say if our strategy actually works, we're going to need twice as many truck drivers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is just such an important and interesting point. It feels to me, correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but it feels to me like we've we've been living in an era in which human capital has tended to be plentiful, relatively speaking. You know, it's like we got people, we got more people than we know what to do with. We got some really great people, and they're just gonna they're just gonna appear when we need them. In fact, we're gonna have more than we need, and we're gonna have to tell a bunch of people no um, in that process. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about supply chains in the last few months. Uh, we've got a human capital supply chain problem that Absolutely. is on top of us. What do you think might be the main drivers in that human capital chain problem that we're talking about? Is it just numbers? What do you think are the, the big pieces of it? Yeah. Well, numbers are a part of it. As you know, demographics in the developed world are pretty unfavorable and are going to take another shot. But due to people putting off household formation, marriage, and having children longer in part because of these two big disruptions we've had in the last 12 or so years, the Great Recession and, and COVID. The US, of course, is actually relative to many of our economic competitors better off than virtually anybody else because our workforce isn't going to actively shrink and we are you know, despite some ebbs and flows, easily, easily, easily the most desirous destination for immigrants of all types. You know, the U.S. has an unparalleled history of digesting very large, spicy meals of influxes of immigrants from all across the world. And if we had a sensible immigration policy, we could make up for a lot of the problems we're now facing. But you tell me the odds of that happening in uh, Washington in uh, the 2020s. Another is that what's happened uh, in the last 10 years, Brett, is unprecedented in terms of the infusion of and the level of customization associated with various work-related technologies, so that the pace of change in jobs is, is at an unprecedented level. A, a coder is going to be working a primary language for somewhere between 2.2 or 2.5 years before they jump to another language. Now, a coder is good at code, and they understand the theory of code, and they understand how the logic of, of programming and how command structures work. So they can make that jump much more easily some who's previously was a fast food outlet manager, but they, they're still having to delay. One of the big issues for the Indian IT companies has been that the rapid digitalization of their client needs has outstripped their capacity to take their staff who are mostly trained in heart, uh, mainframe software running out of big data centers and turn them in to coders and, and applications developers get to work in cloud environments off-premises, it's called. So that the acceleration of skills, the increasing specialization of skills, bad demographics, and then issues that you and others, colleagues of ours at AEI are, are genuinely knowledgeable about, the inflexibility of the education system, the lack of relevant learning uh, in, in starting in K through 12. I mean, people sometimes will talk to me about IT literacy in the US, and I point out that the reason there are so many, quote, Russian teenage hackers is that every teenager in Russia takes four years of required informatics, they call it. You know, we've used technology in, in, in our education system to automate the what we were teaching as opposed to teach about the automation. And so there are a lot of, of causes here, but a big one I just want to call out is not only were companies surprised when they and continue to be surprised when they can't find talent, they start looking around for someone to blame yeah. and don't look in the mirror. Right. It's as if, well, the education system is broken if people are not appearing 
you know, in real time with exactly the skills I want, willing to take the job at the pay package and benefits and terms I'm offering. And if that doesn't happen, someone outside the four walls of my enterprise is not doing their job. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like some universal law was violated, you know, like these people are, you know, I'm a business owner, I'm generating value. I'm, you know, I'm writing paychecks. I'm, I'm provide, I'm providing for my community and by God, where are the people they, I'm owed these people. And uh, that doesn't seem to be, at least in the moment, the the case of the, in the labor market, which is, you know, struggling, obviously, but struggling some really interesting areas that we haven't mm-hmm. seen before, you know, service and hospitality and, you know, people basically saying, I'm not so sure I want to do this job anymore, that I, I need something more out of my work than what I'm getting. Okay, so that's a rather daunting picture that you just uh, that you just painted for us with respect to you know the, the the challenges that we're facing. So let's circle back to the hidden worker and talk about the hidden worker as a resource. Typically, they almost always get thought of as you know from a sort of a deficits mindset of you know the things that they don't have. That's why they're not working because they don't have these things, but how how can we switch that around and look at them as what they truly are, which is a resource to business, to the economy, and to the society? I think that's the exact right topic, and and I think there are several different ways to to break this kind of impasse that we've been describing. The first is to understand that just like any business's customers, hidden workers segment. There are different types of hidden workers, and they need different types of support to overcome the one or two or three barriers that are standing between them and getting on a career pathway that's going to provide decent household income, economic stability, and value to the employer. So, and that once a company, if company surveys these populations of hidden workers, they may find one or two populations that they can imagine are a little bit closer to being job ready for them than maybe some other category of hidden worker. And what we found is that companies that were asked about hidden workers and had never experimented with or set up a program to access a hidden worker population were very certain that, well, this is going to hurt profitability. These people aren't going to be productive. As you said, they're lacking something, which is not the experience of companies that have set up such programs, who in Germany, the UK, and the US, which is the three markets we covered with this analysis, in order to get some comparisons and looking, look for differences, in all three of those markets, companies that had set up programs for veterans, for women coming off career breaks, for people with certain types of illness or disability, found that the programs were economical, that the workers brought in through these programs were more productive, less likely to turn over, more engaged in their work than the open hire, normal hiring process personnel were. So there's a lot of data this is economically justified, which is important because if there are 27 million American hidden workers, and that's our rough estimate, you're not going to make a big dent in that number by trying to engage them through a corporate social responsibility effort. A lot of companies have approached these populations through their foundation in an effort to demonstrate a commitment to their communities and citizenship. And no criticism whatsoever of that. It was appropriate for the era. You know, those people were doing the Lord's work and, and God bless them. But if you're going to start talking about the roughly 13 to 14 million hidden workers who are locked into part time positions, that's the single biggest mm. subsegment and can't get out of it, you're not going to do it in units of 20. At companies that employ 100,000 people, because that's the size of the corporate social responsibility budget. So you have to start getting at some types of root cause. And we're beginning to see some innovation on this part by 
larger companies because of the duress they're feeling in hiring today. COVID has fast-forwarded a number of trends that were latent in the employment market. And probably in the, in the long run, in the service of, of, of economic growth and, and productivity. So let's talk, let's take one of those populations. Let's do veterans because I'm engaged in, in some work on veteran employment. And when you think about veterans, I mean, not only are they typically pretty well endowed with skills that they either had before they went in the military or gained in the military. So they've got strong skills. I know that they don't map well to the civilian sector. They've also got GI Bill, uh, which is munificent if you <laughs> if you are seeking especially higher education, and you've got a robustly funded transition assistant prog- assistance program at the Department of Defense. What more needs to be done for veterans um, to sort of move them, help them transition more easily from military into employment? Well, several things. And I think there are a lot of examples of companies that can be proud that they've they've created programs that focus on that transition for veterans. The first thing to do is that understand that in any one of these populations, um, the the informed employer that has invested in understanding the needs, attributes, skill profiles and accommodations that a hidden worker population is going to need is the one that's going to be able to cause that member of that population to make the transition to become a productive member of their company. So with veterans, it's having companies where, first of all, that employ veterans in the process, who who work in the process of employing veterans um, that are understanding that a Marine S-11 has had these types of of experiences. And we know since we've worked with the population, this is the type of training, this is the type of intervention that has correlated to a successful transition or a company, which is completely um, different from what we have to do with a master sergeant coming out of the Air Force. And you can see a great example of this kind of unsurprisingly is USAA, the insurance company headquartered in San Antonio, which serves military families and veterans. And you know, they have an outstanding record in accommodating vets in large part because they get it. They understand what that life is like. They understand what the transition is going to be. A second thing is to be able to articulate, is what we'd say in, in, in schools, articulate a military record into, if you will, a private sector transcript. Now, veterans are remarkably consistent and remarkably punctilious about being very precise about what they said they did in the military. Uh, and, and, and it's almost a point of honor. I'm not going to exaggerate. I'm not going to brag. I'm not going to make stuff up. This is what I did. The language system they use to describe that is a uniform branches language system. It doesn't match gray flannel suit or um, you know, flannel shirt and and overalls language system. And by the way, if you're relying on AI, it doesn't understand the staff staff sergeant is a project leader. It doesn't mm. understand the language of maintaining a track vehicle would translate really nicely into maintaining an, an auto diesel heavy duty truck engine. It just well, you've got this track feel vehicle language. I don't know what that is. Uh, yeah. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so um the 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 this is all about and you alluded to it earlier and um some years ago i actually before i was associated with ai did a uh paper about applying supply chain management principles to sourcing talent in conjunction with the u.s chamber of commerce foundation uh called talent management pipelines is what we call them and it's really a company that's using that type of thinking the, type, the exact same type of thinking we, we, we apply when we're requiring ball bearings or, or um, even testing computer code. We don't want to think about people as inanimate objects, but the disciplines of capturing data, 
working with your suppliers, giving mm. feedback to your mm. suppliers mm. when you don't. So a, a typical, uh, I'm, I'm doing some research now, hopefully be out in the first quarter about how companies evaluate community colleges and vice versa. And one of the things you see there is the community colleges get very frustrated because no one ever tells them why their graduates aren't getting hired for jobs that they thought they were equipping those young mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. to pursue. Right. So Acme Industries or you know Intergalactic Tech doesn't spend time telling the local community college, well, your your uh, marketing digital marketing program is teaching n minus two technology. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say your graduates showed up and they actually knew the technology, but they had they were really lacking in kind of workplace etiquette and soft skills. So they need to take a module on business communications, maybe even a module on business etiquette. So the any company, whether it's for veterans or women coming off career breaks or some other hidden worker population needs to think about adding sufficient customization to the approach so as to specifically address what they know to be the gaps in the knowledge or experience of that population or the types of accommodations that those are that those workers are going to need so you know very very often with former military they're not programmed to start questioning instructions from a superior, nor are they programmed necessarily to be very effective at delivering instructions to a subordinate in an urgent situation. We teach people a command voice in the military. Literally, that's what it's called. So that you know, if you are talking to your platoon or you are talking to your watch on a, a naval vessel and you ne- need them to straighten up and do their job, we we coach people on how they sound, and if you've been a a petty officer in the Navy for twenty years, you've used that voice a lot. Yeah, and when I've, you're I've, under pressure, I've, you adopt I've, it. I've worked with some of those guys. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty scary. They, aren't they? they're, they're a little scary, <laughs> and they you know, and eventually, I think they learn, you know, that they've come out of a a system in which individuality is completely suppressed. And now they're in a society, they're in the broader society where individuality is the name of the game. Um, Their operative definition of what's going to get you what they call mission success uh is a little bit off. And Mm. But let's talk about that accommodation. What would be better than having that former petty officer standing in a room of, of former NCOs and petty officers Right. Uh, who Explaining that. Saying, you, yeah. you know, your instincts, you know, when all the registers are being overwhelmed by customers is to start getting in command voice. And I'm going to tell you, that's yeah. not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's in fact, it's going to do the opposite. It's just going <laughs> to make people mad and make them even less yep. cooperative. And that's so interesting. So as I was listening to you talk, I could feel kind of like my blood pressure going up because <laughs> I... You know, I've been part of conversations for over 20 years now about the need for training organizations to be better aligned with business needs and creating feedback loops. This is not new. I mean, this is a, an ongoing problem that has been for a long time. I see a couple different obstacles um, to it. Is One is that business people are, for lack of a better word, busy. They have their meeting bottom lines. They're accountable to boards and stockholders and man, other managers further up the chain. And it's not that these things aren't important and wouldn't be nice to do if I had time, but I don't have time. And so I'm not investing. I'm not investing in it, communicating the needs of the organization of the business back to the training institutions or providing them feedback on what you're doing isn't working or I need yep. something different. And I, again, this has been 20 years of doing this, uh, and I, I don't see it getting better. And I think that the efficiency questions that you talked about earlier, when everything's just in time, including human resources, there isn't any time for reflection or 
it's grossly inefficient in a way to sit back and say, we got to think about what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. So all of that to ask this question, and we're reaching the end of our time. And I've got one more thing I want to get to in this. Who's doing this right? <laughs> you know, is there is there something rather than telling people, ah, you're still doing it wrong? Yeah. Who's doing this right? I think there are some green shoots of spring, even though it's fall. And there are companies that are making really big strides, which I'll illustrate in a second. We have to acknowledge that skills providers, generally the education system, and employers speak only vaguely, mutually intelligible forms of a dialect. They have very, very different incentives. They think about the purpose of schooling very, very differently. They have a completely different clock speed, you say, in computing, that their investment cycle, their budget cycle, what, what constitutes fast in those organizations couldn't be less alike. So this is it's, it, the first thing that's required of both parties is to acknowledge that. So, you know, there are multiple community colleges, for example, that are extremely effective at engaging employers. Unfortunately, we keep citing the same eight or 10 because the numbers are closer to eight, and ten, eight or 10. They're 80 to 100 or better yet, 350 to 400, which would be a better number. Employers, one of the reasons I think to be hopeful are under duress right now. And even prior to COVID, you could see some people doing some interesting things. Let me, let me illustrate. I think that we really need to acknowledge the across the board sustained effort Walmart has made in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, I would have said, actually, a rather military-informed organization, and they were running the old playbook. And in the last 10 years, you know, particularly under their current CEO, Doug McMillan, they've launched skill-building academies for their associates. They are supporting education benefits. They've re removed almost all the restrictions they applied in the front end of their hiring that would exclude candidates. They're using technology like uh, uh, VR and uh, virtual reality in innovative ways, like training in social skills, not just here's a picture of what the planogram looks like and how the shelf should look you know, that you see through your Oculus headset. So although many of people who don't study the space are a little surprised to hear that, that you have a company like Walmart do that. I think there are tech companies that have done an excellent job on some of this. And uh, let me call out Accenture, who uh, I have collaborated with in this research. But in part because of that, we, we didn't want to talk about them. But they have not just removed degree requirements, for example, in hiring. You can see the pattern of their actual employment base shifting in response. A lot of companies have done things like remove absolute requirements, but the composition of their workforce isn't changing, which means they've re reviewed, removed the requirement, but they're still effectively enforcing it. That's not true at Accenture. I think IBM is doing an excellent job on reskilling their incumbent workers. Mm. Uh, same with Prudential Financial Services. I think Unilever is doing all sorts of interesting things, not just in the domain of upskilling their workers, repositioning them for a new competitive model that the branded good companies are facing much more digital, much more real-time, much more direct communication with the consumer, but also in, in terms of uh, helping employees think about what they want to do with their future and helping them down that path if that future isn't inside the four walls of Unilever. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, thinking about <laughs> they're just not they're not just another uh, res exploitable resource. You know that in order to have commitment from employees, you need to show commitment back, and that's kind of the the issue that I wanted to close us on because you did a podcast on this. the The value of knowing what you're about, I think, was the title, and I don't know if you ever go on TikTok, but there are some very amusing 
short videos about people trying to quit jobs and and the, di- and the dialogue uh, with the HR manager saying, well, you can't really quit right now because we need you. And, <laughs> and is it because we didn't give you enough pizza parties? Is that the reason that you want to try to try to quit? So, I mean, I, I worked in a, for a consulting firm for a while and I saw these HR, the HR teams working really hard at trying to be creative around the question of engagement, you know, like how do we engage the workforce? keep them happy, make them want to stay. And it did sort of come down to the pizza party idea of, you know, we'll, we'll feed them, we'll set up some sort of uncomfortable social activities that nobody really wants to be at, or very few people want to be at. And that's our, that's our engagement strategy. What should companies be doing, do you think, to engage uh, workers in a meaningful way so that they they do feel engaged and they feel like they're part of the broader mission of the company. Gee, Brent, ordinarily you have to come up here to Harvard Business School and go to a very expensive executive education program to get get these answers. Um, I'm, I'm going to unlock the safe of secrets and, and share a few with you, but I don't don't tell anybody else. All right. Yeah. Right. You uh, just this is think of this as the teaser for okay. getting some of those people up to Harvard and spend money um, on on getting the real story. I think. Frankly, the, the first thing I'd say is I don't think what I'm about to say is any different from it in the way you want to interact with a brand new PhD computer scientist who had 15 job offers or a recent graduate of our school or other distinguished graduate schools versus a high school graduate who's coming into the entry level position in your company. The first thing is you is you want to be honest with them, and that may seem like a you know obvious gross platitude, but honest about what the work is like, about what your company is about. I find particularly with white collar workers, recruiting is much more of a marketing activity than it is a a matching activity, and people get sold jobs and then they show up. And lo and behold, it's not exactly like the glossy folder or the talk on campus sounded like, or at least what they inferred from that. So being very clear about what the deal is. The second thing is, and I've got some new research coming out in a few weeks on this, even with low-wage workers, the vast majority of people, when they take a job, they're hopeful about it. They're, They're optimistic about it. They want it to be a success. And the trick to keeping them engaged is to show them a path forward. Mm. That with lower skilled workers, it's here are the types of things you could do to qualify for a raise or a promotion. Mm. And you can see Amazon doing some very interesting things here. Really, you know, once again, a company that people are surprised that I point out, but actually investing in, in giving people highly subsidized, essentially 100% subsidized on premises on Amazon premises training in in the time adjacent to your shift so you can qualify for a better job for a different employer mm. Mm. where Amazon is saying we know that the, the economics of our warehouses are such that we're never going to be able to pay a warehouse person hundred thousand dollars a year but aircraft mechanic at American Airlines in Dallas can make 80 90 hundred thousand dollars a year so will both increase morale and, yeah, to improve our economics by reducing turnover, mm. we'll make available certified training that American Airlines says that a successful completion of this pre-qualifies you for consideration for employment by us. So whether it's internal training, it has to be quite directed, linked to that individual's objectives, but show them a path forward in terms of learning and for a certain class of trade leadership, mm-hmm. uh, particularly young, highly skilled people want to have leadership opportunities early. That doesn't mean they have to be put in charge of a division or put at some high risk of failure, but more chance to lead projects, to assume some early responsibility. I think it's very important for companies, uh, increasingly important to have what I would describe as a moral purpose mm-hmm. and not be apologetic about it. Sometimes business people get very hard boiled and 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 don't want to get all dewy eyed and sentimental or something. But and that does not 
have to be, we're going to cure some horrible disease or we're going to save the planet. But it's, it's, let's say for a chain of restaurants, it's a very noble purpose to say, we're going to give people a really, really pleasant, good value opportunity to enjoy themselves in the in in one of the few occasions any month when they're going to go ahead and spend the discretionary income to do that. Mm-hmm. If they're going to take their kids out to dinner or their parents out to dinner or go out with friends to dinner, you know, we should remember that they don't do this every night. You know, we're here at whatever restaurant every night. So we regularly see people who are out to enjoy themselves. But any individual family or group that's here, they might be doing this once every other month or you know, once every quarter. So we really want to make that special for them. We're, that's what we want to do. I mm-hmm. think that's a very noble purpose. And so it doesn't all have to be ice shelves and CO2 and ending childhood poverty. So I think that's important. And this is you know, kind of management 101, but it's very important that, that the company communicate and send all those messages and others and listen, have the capacity of an institution to, to listen to workers. Because most workers, and I think going back to the military, you know, every newly commissioned lieutenant pretty quickly realizes that they're way, way better asking the private or the uh, corporal or sergeant that's on their second tour of duty, how does this work? As opposed to thinking they can tell them how it works. And we all know that any one of them is smart enough if they get earned that commission to understand that they've got a, a senior NCO there, non-commissioned officer, who is there to keep them, the new lieutenant, out of trouble and the entire platoon out of trouble until that lieutenant begins to learn how to do his or her job. So the, those same principles apply. And they're really, really hard to do consistently. So it's, it's, a lot of these principles are pretty apparent. It's just really hard to do when you're trying to get the product out the door, yeah. you know, the table's buffed and, and the truck's dispatched. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we, the, the wonder of the modern economy is its efficiency and its ability to deliver what we need when we need it at a price we're willing to pay. It's just, it's fantastic, right? You know? All of that efficiency comes at a price that's often borne by workers and employers getting you know disappointed because workers don't necessarily want to be that a cog in that kind of machine. And yet to do it the other way means accepting some of the trade-offs that are involved. It's it really to be a, a question of what what definition of efficiency are you using? Yeah, yeah, like we talked about at the beginning. There's fault, there's true efficiency and false efficiency. So yeah, and I just I, I'm really struck by what you said about moral purpose as well. I I think that people meaning in life is not an optional thing. I mean, we all strive for it. We all have to have it in order to really be, I think, if not happy, at least sort of content with our lives. And if you're not communicating as an employer, you're not communicating that mission that value add that goes beyond the bottom line and into, you know, what's our contribution here to the well-being of others and their happiness. It's just very hard to sustain. It's hard to sustain a business. It's hard to sustain a career without that kind of mission. And people like you and I and others, we have that in a surplus of that. You know, we live in that kind of I managed to find my way into the niche where I could experience that. And that's what really what we kind of need to be looking for for others, for their sake and our own. Joe, where can people follow your work? Where should they, where should they look for it? Well, we've got two projects up here uh, at Harvard that I co-chair. One is called the Harvard Business School Managing the Future of Work. Project. I co chair that with Professor Bill Kerr, who's an expert on skilled immigration. If you just were to Google that, uh, you'll get a few ads from Brand X and Brand Y up above it, but Managing the Future of Work is a pretty distinctive name. And on that website, we've got all our white papers, we've got links to case studies we've written. We have about almost 200 podcasts there, which in a, in a searchable form. So if you're interested in technology or 
gig work or care economics, you can find specific episodes. Uh, and we also have a newsletter where, where we publish periodically what we're reading and what we think are interesting trends, which you can sign up for. There's also I chair with uh, several colleagues from other schools at Harvard, uh, something called the Project on Workforce at Harvard, which also has a website. We're not doing podcasts there yet, but obviously you can follow me at Joseph B. Fuller on Twitter and on LinkedIn as well. And my podcasts, by the way, from Harvard are posted uh, through my website at AEI. So you can also access some of our work there. And what's the name of your podcast again? Managing the future of war. Managing the, okay. Well, Joe, thanks so much for the time. Thank you for your work. This is incredibly important and timely given some of the challenges that we're facing in the in the COVID recovery. So congratulations on that and look forward to hearing more in the future. Well, thank you, Brent. That means a lot to me coming from someone who's done all the distinguished work you've done. So really excited by what the cross-section of people at AI who are working on these topics are are contributing to the debate. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.